Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And happy 4th of July. Woo! Independence Day! Yeah, it's not technically the 4th. It's actually July 1st. If you're listening to this when it's new, if you're not, you're late to the party. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And these rules don't apply to you anymore. Bitch. Uh, Anywho. No, sorry. Uh, Anywho. Uh, but no, it's 4th of July weekend, and, uh, it's a, it's maybe a complicated time to decide to celebrate 4th of July, so I won't necessarily say that we are celebrating 4th of July, but we are here to commemorate. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Aha. Uh-huh. And we can have fun commemorating without fully necessarily embracing the idea of celebration, because I think that... It would be disingenuous to truly say that I personally am celebrating the 4th of July this year. I mean, I didn't do anything for Juneteenth this year, so I definitely don't think that I'm doing anything (laughs) for 4th of July. I think on the scale of, like, which Independence Day holiday, like, actually, you know, really symbolizes independence, I'd say the Juneteenth. No, that's fair. Um, but, uh... All the same, we did want to commemorate it. And last year, with Henry uh, and I, we decided to do a whole big Independence Day double feature. Oh, yeah. And uh, this year, even just... uh, Like, I decided some of this stuff a while ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, it just so happened that I was accidentally still very topical in some of the the selections i mean honestly as i've gotten older i've noticed you know the trends of history Mm -hmm. and i think that you know things come and they go and it's always you know around again and i think that it happening to be topical is just you know also the fact that it's history recycling itself and it's also a little bit probably that some of this was on my mind I mean, honestly, probably, you know, this has been the, the climate of the, the past couple of years. Yeah. Really. So, you know, any instance that is happening right now that is relevant to this is also just because of the entire, you know, ether is, is, yeah. is the heartbeat yeah. of America right now. Yeah. Um, I decided that I wanted to do... A, that was kind of a tangential way for me to get back around to the idea of I decided that I wanted to do a sort of civically minded 4th of July celebration because I feel that 4th of July is and I, I guess it really struck me recently again after I even decided the, the movies for the episode I heard people talking about 4th of July and I heard some people being essentially like I'm still going to celebrate, you know, because for me, it's just food and fireworks. Interesting. And that really hit an interesting chord for me of what? Yeah, I mean, because like if that's your idea of the holiday, then like you're you're truly not even like understanding the purpose behind it at that point. Yeah, it's like Christmas without any of the lore behind it it's just a day that you put up a tree and you get some presents it doesn't even have the santa context yeah it's just it's just the stuff the coke bears come out 
Yeah. And there's the fat man in a suit that's kind of like a mascot for Christmas, but who cares about him? Yeah, you know, that's... Presents and treat. That's pretty sad, honestly, because, like, you know, as a concept, like, I really enjoy the 4th of July. I enjoy the idea of, like, patriotism and, you know, going out and celebrating America and, you know, all the fireworks were always so fun growing up. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like the, the fireworks and the pomp and the circumstance mm -hmm. has so much now eclipsed the in the discourse. The fact that the Declaration of Independence is the day that we declared war and the day that we announced, you know, that we were actively willing to, if our demands were not met, go to extreme lengths to separate ourselves from British rule. Yeah. And that's really what's at the heart of the whole whole thing, along with a, a whole bunch of other things, which, which will, don't you worry, we'll get into it. <laughs> um, but I decided that I really wanted to do a civically-minded episode, and leading up to the episode, it was really hitting home with me that, like, a civically-minded July 4th episode was the right thing to do. And it's funny that I mentioned that, because today, for our two main films, we're going to be doing All the President's Men and Do the Right Thing. Two movies about doing the right thing, but only one of them named it. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's going to be you know where it's we were talking beforehand you know it's going to still be a fun episode as fun as we can make it but it is meant to to be mindful yes you know it is it's going to be as fun as we can make it obviously because i don't want y'all to feel like you're eating your vegetables I mean, you can eat your vegetables, but they can, like, you know, be seasoned appropriately. They could have Parmesan. You know, it could be, it could be a good time. Uh, and so we want to still make sure that this is a good time for y'all, but we also want to enrich. And if you're here to listen, then maybe this is also an opportunity to be here to learn and, and maybe pick up something that you want to go and dive into and learn more about, and then you can go and you can spread truth and, and you know be a be a foundational point for for doing some some good in a in a properly patriotic way or woo <laughs> fireworks <laughs> you know at the end of the day whatever works for you homie but if you've gotten this far then i think you're hooked no that's fair uh and so before we get into the discussion on those movies, though, just out of curiosity, um, you know, you talked about patriotism being something that you feel, you know, and some of the emotions that you've already, you know, talked about feeling evoked by the holiday. Are there any other feelings that you sort of feel about Independence Day? Um, and also, what are some movies, of course, or TV shows that make you think of Independence Day? Oh, I think that second part was the harder part of the question. I don't know. Other than Independence Day? Yeah. I, I don't know. They play that thing on loop, just like Christmas Story at, at Christmas time. Um, I'll come back to that one. <laughs> um, what do I feel during the 4th of July? Other than, like, you know, I guess 
pride and in, in like in in the, the the idea of like what you know the the what it is to be an American. You know, we were we were always brought up to to be very like proud to be an American. You know, everything is like you know very boastfully American. And I think that you know other than the fact that it was the hardest holiday for me to dress for other than like uh Valentine's Day because I just don't have a lot of like red in my wardrobe. Um you know I always enjoyed the this this weird celebration that like you shot off fireworks because of reasons I guess because they like reminded you of the war or something but they were also really pretty and it was really the only time of year that we did that other than New Year's um and I don't know it was just kind of like one of those nice little summer holidays I have like a very vivid memory of a fourth of July where (laughs) my parents it was um my siblings and I are like pretty big gaps apart so there's this was the time when like and I'm I'm the baby so I was I don't know I was probably like 16 or something you know the older two were out of the house at this point and we were like trying to find a place to watch fireworks and we ended up on this like back road somewhere because like apparently there were fireworks being shot off here supposedly and we just drove for what felt like a, an eternity. I felt like we were going to, like, miss the show wherever it was, back these, like, dirt roads and crap. And then out of nowhere, we just came upon this, like, field of parked cars <laughs> that were just, like, all people just, like, had had some, some you know, lawn furniture and stuff and that just had, like, parked themselves out of their car, kind of like a drive-in movie theater, just to watch these people shoot off fireworks in some random, like, in the middle of nowhere place. And I just really remember that night being like, I'm surprised we made it. You know, it just, it felt like we were in the car for hours, going somewhere that was supposed to be supposedly in Charlotte. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, I don't think, I don't think we're in Charlotte anymore. I think we've made it halfway to Virginia by now. Huh. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, it just, it reminds me of the times when like, yeah, it's in the middle of summer, you were out of school at this point, and it was one of those holidays that you got to hang out with your, with your parents. And I'm not one of those people who are like, ugh, my parents, like, I enjoy, I enjoy hanging out with my folks a lot. Um, I am their child. <laughs> And so, like, this was one of those times that I got to hang out with mom and dad instead of them being off at work and me being bored at the house because I was also some weird homebody child that never left the home um, and just watched TV all the time. Um, but again, I can't think of, a, like, another Independence Day movie, you know, or something. I mean, something that makes me think about America, um, Patton. Okay. I think that Patton is a very, like, America movie and, like, oh, MASH, you know, things that I, but it's, it's it's about war. They're both about war. The only things that I could think of that are, like, swimming in patriotism other than Independence Day um, are, are war movies. I've got another movie for you for Independence Day very specifically. Okay, shoot. The Patriot. See it? Mel Gibson's The Patriot. Oh, and I don't think I've ever seen that movie all the way through. <laughs> it was one of those movies... With young Heath Ledger. Like Independence Day that was always on TV. Yeah. And so, good luck catching it from the beginning, guys. No, that's fair. Because back in the day, you couldn't just flip on an app 
and press a button and play something. You had to find the TV guide. No, that's that's pretty fair. <laughs> and sometimes movies were just halfway done and you just had to accept that. Yeah, you were you were more there to watch whatever was coming next. Yeah. In full. You know. You were catching whatever was on that channel. That's how I watched a lot of the Harry Potter movies. Just like, I mean, I had seen them, obviously, from beginning to end. But, like, you know, count the number of times that I've seen that movie whole. I don't know. Count the number of times that I've done, like, partial watches. Thousands. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But I, I think that I think that everything that you said is is pretty fair, and and I, you know, I've I've heard that that story before, but uh, it, it's it's an enjoyable story, um, and I I I don't really have I think like a, a really strong personally like a really strong Fourth of July story that really comes to mind. Honestly, um, it's just it's not one of those holidays for me that has ever really. Um, had all the occasion you know i've gone and done fireworks with my family and i've gone and done cookouts with different parts of my family but it's definitely more of sort of the amalgam memory of like childhood fourth of july's Mm. than any sort of singular specific thing um and so you know independence day is is definitely one of those that I, I, I like the idea of it, but again, I think that it's also, like we talked about, one of those ones that sort of has now just become odd. Um, yeah. For me personally, it's just like an odd holiday now. Uh, and it's one that I've also started to become more and more disassociated with. The older and older that I've gotten and the more and more that kind of the meaning and the celebration of it has shifted. I get that. I get that. Um, it's definitely one of my, my, my B list holidays. Like there's the A list ones where like Halloween. Yeah, that's and, my A list all year every. Actually, that's S tier. If I'm really like ranking these in proper tier, that's S tier. Well, that's top notch. Well, no, yeah, that's that's completely fair. But like you know the the ones that like are a true bank holiday, not just like a oh good it's Memorial Day. Yeah. You know oh we the Fourth of July. You know what I mean? Because then there's also C-listers, like um, St. Patrick's Day, where you just have to yeah. work on that day. You just get to quote-unquote celebrate. No, that's <laughs> um, But I wanted to go ahead and jump a- into a little bit of the the history of uh, Independence Day, if I may. Sure, honestly. Let's let's go ahead and get this thing cooking and, uh... You know, after all of these years of uh, the American public school system and celebrating this holiday, I actually don't know, you know, if we ever were were really taught anything about it. Uh, we, we were taught some about it, but it's probably very spotty and also at an age where, like, it doesn't really sink. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I get that. Um... So, here's a little bit of some Independence Day, July 4th related history for y'all. So, Independence Day is the day that um, the American Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress. It is not the day that it was signed. Well, already my my grasp on history is completely flawed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so the original signing um, took place actually August 2nd, 1776. Okay. Uh, July 4th was just the adoption date. The process of arriving at a con or at a at a declaration was a sort of months long journey, where people met once a month, every month for like a, a certain period of time to sort of discuss and deliberate on this issue. And what ended up happening is July fourth, they decided to adopt this uh, Declaration of Independence, which is essentially when it was going into then final drafting stage. Uh, it had already gone through a sort of drafting process that began uh, earlier on. Uh, at the end of it all, 56 delegates signed the Declaration of Independence, and they signed it in order of geography. <laughs> they went from the northmost colony to the southmost colony. So it it was signed in delegate order from New Hampshire to Georgia. Fantastic, fantastic. I love that being the order that they did that. They all got in a line <laughs> in order. Like, you know, when you were a kid and they were like, all right, line up by height. They, they were go, like, all right, line up by colony, northmost to southmost. They weren't even like, let's do this thing alphabetically. They were like, all right, know your geography, everyone. Let's do it. Pop, pop, tip, tip. Uh, so the signing took place in, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia specifically, mm -hmm. uh, which was also where the Second Continental Congress had sort of established themselves as the meeting point of this body. Um, and, uh, the declaration was primarily drafted by a handful of people, John Adams from Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin from Pennsylvania, Robert Livingston from New York, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, and the person who was supposed to really be doing, like, the hard hard labor here, the writing, the heavy lifting, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. Woo, Virginia. Boo, Thomas Jefferson. What I find interesting about that list is I think that it really highlights the, the core idea of this, which is that, like, this entire body was was built up of a bunch of people that were decided upon by their states to be representatives. You know, this is before there was any kind of recognized federal body. The only recognized government was the British government. And so these were kind of home-drafted people who were thrown together by the circumstance of this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh... You know, all of that stuff about this is where they met, this is where they decided to sign, this is how many people signed, this is who drafted it, is all well and good. Uh, you know, the declaration was essentially us announcing ourselves separate from Britain. If, like I said, certain demands were not met, we would part ways under whatever terms that required. This means war. And, um... So it's all well and good to say that this is when we did it, this is how we did it, this is, you know, all of those elements, but it doesn't really get to the heart of why. Mm-hmm. So for a little bit of American history backstory, because I feel like this is probably the moment where everyone is probably the wibbliest on American history. 
is the, essentially from... Like the revolution? Uh, from when we started up to about the Constitution. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. So, like, a week passed, right? <laughs> and so, of course, you know, America did not start with colonial... North America settlement did not start with colonial America. There were Native Americans who were here before colonial mm-hmm. America. Those people are thought to have crossed over from Eurasia across a landmass that is called Beringia. Uh, they were originally thought to have settled in Beringia and then migrated further into North America and then eventually what would become South America and Central America. Um, but that they really, you know, migrated either or direction out of that landmass once water took it over and it became the Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all happened sort of thousands of years ago and those people settled into North America and spread geographically sort of from the West Coast over. Um, European settlement really starts with uh, the 1600s, much, much later, you know, we're talking about, like, pre-BC, uh, or, you know, pre, pre-AD, into BC, or BCE, when these people crossed over Beringia into North America. Wait, so which one? I'm sorry, you said literally all of them. <laughs> BC, or, uh, so they, they came over in BC or BCE. Okay. Pre-AD. Copy. Um, and so... They were very good and thoroughly settled across North America by the 1600s, which is when uh, European settlement properly came over. There's, of course, the talk of, like, the Vikings coming and and moving over to North America, but they never really settled here in a way that mattered, um, if at all. So proper European settlement began kind of with, like, a, a conflagration of... Of course, European economic interests, but also European religious interests, with groups like the Pilgrims and the Puritans coming over and also founding colonies. And of course, the big sort of founding point that a lot of people point to is 1620 with the the founding of the Plymouth Colony, Mm -hmm. which is also where you get the, the, you know, the statement, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. Yes. Is a callback to that sort of, of point, which is when a group of, of European settlers landed in Plymouth and, and established a colony. So, like, from sort of 1620, if we use that as a, an establishing point onward, it was, like I said, this mix of religious colonies, like pilgrims, who were pretty chill, and Puritans, who were not chill at all. Uh, they had been sort of ostracized because of the extremism of Puritan belief by the Church of England, and then also at large by other European countries. They actually kind of bounced around Europe before eventually deciding to swing around and just come to the colonies. But they weren't the problem. <laughs> it was everybody else. Um, and so the early, like hundred-ish years, right, if we take 1620 to 1720, the first, like, hundred-ish years were a real shit show in the colonies. 
uh, the the genocide of of the indigenous tribes of America. Um, also, then of course, just like starvation and famine issues because they didn't know how to cultivate the land, they didn't know how to live here, they didn't know what to eat, uh, and so you. That's of course the whole the foundational things of Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Is that we were yeah. about to die and some people took pity on. They on... shouldn't have. <laughs> I'm saying it right here and now. We've got a record of it. They should have let them die. Uh, and, you know, you had, like, things like, you know, Roanoke-type events where just colonies had mass incidents that just sort of wiped them out. And you had all of these sorts of problems. And you eventually, of course, hit the witch trials. And so, like, the first hundred years of the American colonies, real fucking nightmare... They were, they were going through their teenage angst years. <laughs> um, and it results in, like, loads of death, just generally across the board. Uh, moving on, of course, then you get into the 1700s, and things are kind of okay there. However, eventually you run into America being the ground zero for what becomes a global conflict known as the Seven Years' War which actually took place over nine years, but don't worry about that. It didn't roll off the tongue. And uh, what became known here is the French-Indian War. That's, that's correct. And the Seven Years' War was a battle between Britain and France, but it essentially began with a skirmish over the Ohio Valley region in mm-hmm. America, which was Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, etc. And the person that ended up leading that battle... And losing his ass at Fort Necessity, July 3rd, 1754, mm-hmm. was George Washington. Oh, is that the, the terrible one where all the people died and he survives? Yeah. Oh. Uh, he lost his ass and surrendered handily and was essentially the, the sort of last man standing of an absolute ass whooping at Fort Necessity. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at, at the ass whooping. I'm I'm honestly just laughing at the fact that somebody named this fort necessity. <laughs> and then they lost it. <laughs> and they did. We need it. And then they lost it. They lost necessity. <laughs> you hate tragedy. to see it happen. Um but the 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 Seven Years War was fought from seventeen fifty four to seventeen sixty three. Um, and that actually is also where the bedrock sort of foundation of the conflict between the crown and the colonies begins. Okay. Because the colonies were left to do a lot for a long time. And then Britain kind of gets the colonies involved in this shitstorm. And then when the war is done, Britain has all of these debts and they go, okay. Let's tax them. You're now going to pay for this. And they said, we were allowed to do whatever the fuck we wanted, and then you got us into this mess. And they said, yeah, but whatever, we, like we fought to save you. We own you. So therefore, you're going to pay. Ugh. And they said, I don't think that we're going to pay. And they said, you're going to pay. And also, by the way, we're now also stationing troops in your homes. To make sure that to you To make sure that you're also... Not only paying, but also because we're kind of hard up right now, and we're trying to, you know, increase our military force across the colonies. So you're just gonna you're gonna house these people, and you do not get a say. 
And also, if you say anything to Adeline, they'll report you for sure. And they wondered where this went wrong. <laughs> they were like, I don't understand. These were all reasonable terms made by, you know, sound and, and able bodies. And so this is kind of what became the bedrock for American Revolution. And this is what led us to the point of deciding... And the, the core underlying idea of this, and I want to stress this, was taxation without representation. They weren't anti-tax. For a long time, they weren't even anti the crown. They had been allowed to do what they wanted. They even paid some taxes to a certain degree. Uh, but at a certain point, it became excessive and they didn't have any say in any of the matters that were happening that led to these events. Mm -hmm. So it's not even an anti-tax. It was taxation without representation was kind of one of the underpinning points that they tried to stress to build sentiment against the crown. Mm -hmm. Was why are these people who are so far away, who have so little say in what we do, now demanding so much of us for what they forced us to do when we don't get any kind of say in Parliament. We shall create a democracy. And that was kind of, you know, again, the, the underpinnings and, you know, the, some, of the, some of the founding fathers' ideas were very heavily influenced by things that they had learned and studied from some of the great thinkers and philosophers of European thought. Uh, and so it was kind of this influx of two ideas coalescing together, which is what if we took these ideas of trying to create a better society and our own desire to be separate from the crown and blended these ideas together and said, you know what, let's try and make a government that is separate from a monarchy, which was pretty rare, if not completely rare, at the time. Almost every single major government at that time was established by a monarchy. Is that is that related to the exceptionalism? Partially. Okay. But, you know, you think about it, even in J Japanese history, the shogun and the shogunates and the emperors, and it's uh, even in, in, in so much of these cultures across the globe, so much of it is bloodline-based no, in the way that right. rule happens. Uh, even in certain tribes, it is so heavily bloodline-based. And this was a real chance at, you know, trying to take some of these ideas that we had learned from philosophers like John Locke and combine them with our own want for self-governance. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the bedrock. And the starting point for that was the Declaration. And that is the back history of July 4th, the day that we decided as a conglomerate of 13 colonies that we were going to, in a unified voice with a delegation of five states voicing our opinion, write a formal rebuke of the crown and its dominion over us, and that we were going to, if necessary, chart our own course. 
And I, I think that that is the power and the importance of Independence Day and also hits at the idea that once upon a time, these 13 colonies relied on each other. Mm. Well, they had a common enemy. Mm-hmm. And we had to work together to succeed. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to promise and establish certain things for ourselves to make everyone's lives better. Every citizen's lives mm-hmm. better. And also, though, I think that at the core of it, we start to hit at now we have to apply what do those ideas of civic duty and responsibility and uh, ownership to, to what you do and how you do it and the, the compass toward doing the right thing and what it means to be American starts to sort of hit with how do you justify that in a country that is now so far removed from 13 colonies where they met once a month because it took you fucking weeks to travel? What does it mean to now be an American in this context where there are way more amendments than were ever in the Bill of Rights, where it's a an entire apparatus that the Founding Fathers could have never, ever conceived of. And I think that that's where we start to get into some of the discussion with our new films for today's episode, starting with All the President's Men. Uh, All the President's Men is about two reporters audaciously going after the Watergate scandal. Uh, the Watergate scandal, for those who don't know, was essentially President Nixon was a deranged lunatic who uh, was sort of power-hungry and bent on knowing absolutely what everyone was thinking and talking about at all times, and ended up getting caught funding a break-in to the hotel where Democratic leadership was meeting uh, to try and learn insider information. It's the really boiled down talking points. And he completely escaped culpability by stepping down and accepting a pardon where he technically accepted guilt for the crime, but also then could never run for office again or hold office again. And that was totally fine. That was how he got away with the whole thing. And it was decided that that was how the nation was going to heal, was by letting Nixon get away with it. And uh, all the president's men was released a few years after the incident. Um, The film was released uh, April 1979. Uh, Its runtime is two hours, 18 minutes. It's rated PG. No! (laughs) No, this movie is not rated PG. It's 1979. It's rated PG. Just like Indiana Jones and The Lost Ark. Oh my gosh. Uh... It had a budget of $8.5 million. This movie is minimum PG-13 now. It graced $70.6 million. Fantastic. Uh, it was directed by Alan J. Pakula. It's written by William Goldman. Uh, and it stars Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward, Jack Warden as Harry Rosenfeld, Martin Balsam as Howard Simmons, 
Jason Robards as Ben Bradley, and the immortal Hal Holbrook as the equally immortal Deep Throat. Uh, the official plot is the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein uncover the details of the Watergate scandal that leads to President Nixon's resignation. Uh, so, uh, dear, what did you think of All the President's Men, and what was your familiarity with Nixon and the Watergate scandal uh, before going into the film. I have a feeling a lot of it is based in Futurama. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, uh, let's see. Well, I guess I'll start with the, the last one, because that's... <laughs> That's the one that's the first in my head right now. Um, so my familiarity with the the water uh, with the Watergate incident and this this whole business with Nixon, um, I mean honestly, like Futurama pretty much like you know gives the sound bites of it, but like that's pretty much also just my general knowledge of it was the fact that you know Nixon liked to record everything and something went down at the Watergate where like he was you know planting bugs or something and you know, he got caught, but it was this crazy investigation that happened, and then Nixon resigned, and the end, you know, that's kind of basically exactly what you just said, but, like, you know, that was my understanding of it, was, was that, you know, I've never, gosh, you know, there's, there's so much that with, with the access to the internet, it's almost overwhelming, you know, but back in the day, you know, you had your sound bites, and that was pretty much all you got because, like, you couldn't just go and look something up on on Wikipedia, you know, real quick. You had to go to a library. Nobody has time for that. Um, so, like, my real understanding for it is 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 pretty pretty vague. Um, I don't even know who. I genuinely do not know, and I know that you do. I don't know who became president after. Was it Ford? Yeah, so Gerald Ford ended up being sworn in, and he was only president for, like, a, a little brief window of time. And then he ended up losing, you know, like, a, an election bid. Yeah. Um, so, honestly, yeah, I thought this, um... This is what led to Carter winning the White House. Copy. Jimmy Carter? You know, we need, an, we need a new Jimmy Carter, but that's a different topic. Um, what was your first question? What did you, uh, what did you think of the film? Oh, All okay. All the President's Men. Oh, perfect. That was where I was going to go. I just wanted to make sure. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. It was a fascinating, um, window in, in, and I really enjoyed the, the mystery behind it. You know, it was, it's really wrapped in this wanting to know the truth and people going, don't worry about it. It's fine. And, you know, them going... Why shouldn't I worry about it? Like, why can't you guys just tell me because what's going on? Because it's just on? a break in. It's fine. Yeah. And every time, you know, people, they would look further in it. Everybody would be like, why are you, why are you poking around so much? You know, why don't you, why don't you just stop? It was just a riot. Yeah. You know, it's fine. It was just a group of people. Th yeah. That acted independently. Don't worry about it. Don't poke too far. Yeah, you know. You know, whatever you think happened definitely didn't happen. And so it was this kind of, like, fun journey down this this rabbit hole with, with two phenomenal actors that, like, you, like, I've never seen at this point in their careers, you know. 
acting in a no one today would go, I'm going to put Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Sorry, I don't mean to derail you. No, no one today would go, I'm going to put Robert, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in a movie together. Yeah, they would be like, well, what are we doing here? What kind of movie are you trying to make? What the fuck movie is this? But this is them as young men, to well, your yeah, point, you know? at the height of them being young actors. No, and for sure, and, like, neither of them are really pigeonholed into any kind of thing yet, you know? So, um... It's it's really great to just watch these two people, you know, be people for a little bit and not just be famous. Um, and this, the, it's, it, it's truly, it kind of reminds me of Wormwood a little bit, you know, where the deeper you go, the more rotten it is. And it's that same, Bob Woodward is of that same caliber as, and I'm blanking on who it is that's in Wormwood, but he's that same caliber of investigator bob woodward and carl bernstein are in that same level of guy that was like i can tell you everything right now but if i do it'll burn my source completely yeah and then that's that he's of that same caliber these guys are no for sure and them literally like scraping at the bare bottom like you know everybody being so mad at them for not revealing their sources and this that and the other but like they're doing the work and they're doing it well and they know that they're doing something that's going to ruffle a lot of feathers and get a lot of people in trouble and like the fact that you know they they practically go door to door through like a phone book of employee list names several times in order to just get somebody just one person to talk to them um and just tell them what's going on in the inner circle of this organization. And everybody is so scared shitless that nobody wants to give them anything. And which raises more red flags. You know, why doesn't anybody want to talk about this? Well, and that actually, I think, really starts to hit on a, on a good point that I wanted to hit on, which is that um, good journalism accurate journalism the kind of journalism that people should aspire towards the kind of journalism that keeps people informed the kind of journalism that is of a civic good is hard fucking work and it is making sure that you are damn certain before you shoot because you can't miss because this is important because you are about to tell people that the President of the United States did X, and what you can't do is miss. No, yeah, and I, honestly, and this isn't a day and age when, you know, media is is, is an ever-growing... Yeah, at this an, point. It's an ever-growing um, medium as a whole, you know, television, radio, um, the written word uh, with, with newspapers and magazines, and it's... It, it's it's really cooking at this point in time, and it's definitely not to the point where we are in history, where there's just such a flood of information. But all we're of getting the time. real close to cable. I we're mean, getting really close I to mean, cable in time. You're not wrong, and so like for to your point of this being hard hitting journalism, these are people who are taking the medium seriously. You know, this isn't your your fluff pieces. This isn't the deluge of of you know, BuzzFeed quizzes of, of what type of cat you are. I didn't, I didn't go and get some fucking comms degree and, you know, half-ass my way into some sort of 
legitimate job at a serious publication. You know, this was this was hard work. People were editing these things like old school grade teachers with red fucking ink that would throw that shit back at you if it was bad. Yeah, you know. <laughs> And I think that this movie just perfectly also creates this world for for the story, for, you know, this journey. Like, I feel like I'm getting pretty accurate information, even though this is so close to the incident itself. I don't feel cheated by by that because, you know, the the, the further out you get from something, the more information you get and the, the, the more in-depth you can go with X. Well, um, and it was written by the book that the script is based on was written by the journalists who broke the story. So I think that that's perfect. And I think that it has a good filter by it being, one, them going to the book, which had an editor, mm -hmm. and then them not writing the script, but it going to another person. And I yeah. think that that was a good filter that kept it more objective. Yeah, no, for sure. Because also, again, you know, you can write something, you can love something, but not be the right person to do the to do the jobs. So, you know, even though they are writers, and and they wrote this book, but that doesn't mean that like they could write this movie. You know, yeah. G genuinely speaking, they can advise it. They can they can point in the right direction for sure. But also, you know, like they did, you're gonna have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I think what's a real shame for me is, um, and this isn't necessarily about the movie, it's about our, our interaction with history, if I may sort of get a little bit off topic just for a second. Sure. Is that this is a, a fascinating, ever-relevant story that pop culture has now boiled down to a word, Watergate, that has now been truncated even further down to gate. It's now this suffix that gets slapped on to other things to create a sense of scandal. Pizzagate. Uh, God, I can't think of another one off the top of my head right now. But I feel like gate gets tacked on haphazardly, kind of like how the Weather Channel now goes and slaps names on blizzards, even though everyone tells them not to because it degrades... The concern over hurricanes. Um, I feel like the way that gate has now been turned into this sort of pop culture suffix of slap it on a thing and it's a scandal. Mm -hmm. Has now diminished the fact that this is a scandal that went in our modern age all the way up to the highest level of office. Yeah. And I think that watching this movie really highlights how intricate and dedicated the systems in place are if they choose to try and circumvent the systems in place to check that office. Mm -hmm. And I think that this shows just how dedicated you know, people are willing to go to seize any length of power and how good journalism is going as deep as you can. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a really, really hard-hitting movie for, for all of those points. And I think that it was really interesting to go back and watch 
a movie that was really just so about the grind. For sure, because there's no like trickery of of moviedom for for the audience, where you you get to know the truth before your main characters do. No, you're going on the journey with Carl and Bob, working hard, getting into arguments within their own partnership, you know, but wanting so desperately to know the truth, and and you know, even though they have deep throat as as a as a guide for the most part he's not willing to to say anything on record because once he says something on record, then they'll know exactly who he is and that compromises his existence as well because only he could know this information. Yeah. So it's it's this this web of trying to find more people to corroborate this story, to find the evidence on their own so that that way they can back it instead of just getting a handouts from this person. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's truly just... Um, a really fascinating story because also you know it is history it's it's talking about real things and just like how deep the rabbit hole goes was just a fascinating um window into this for me because of the fact that i only knew sound bites did it help clarify any of the history on the watergate scandal yeah for i mean you? i think that for me because of the the watering down of watergate even even from just you know it, it was it was literally 20 years before i was born you know no wait no i'm thinking about roe this is this is 70 no the movie is 79 the uh, movie 76. 76 um so it would have been a few years before this well, still, 20, 20 plus years mm-hmm. before... It would have been about 20, yeah. Um, before I was born, even by that point, by the time we were learning about this, it had been so just, like, bogged down to, to sound bites, you know? So, this was, this was completely illuminating of the fact of, of the seriousness of the situation, you know? Because of, because of that, um, thinning happening, I didn't realize, you know what the what the real big deal was well and i think the i think the movie also does the smart job of kind of like let's strip out nixon from the situation nixon is really almost a footnote in this story and the greater story of nixon leading up to the primary and the win and all of that and blah 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 plays out in like tv in the background and radio in the background no and instead yeah they go look at how cancerous this mechanism was Mm-hmm. let's just look at this mechanism that does touch the president we've established that it does already but it also reaches so far let's look at how cancerous it is and it's 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 in the blood of these people people were afraid yeah, it's going so far. It's going so deep. And nobody told them to be afraid, and nobody told them to keep secret. But, but they, they s- knew that they had to. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing that's... They, they knew that they were being watched. They and knew that, that they their were... lives could be in danger. Yeah. And no one explicitly ever outright threatened them. But they were abundantly aware that and... everything was wrong. And that's fascinating, and that's there's a lot of red flags going up for for an entire group of people who are also kind of trapped as well. Because there's no getting out at that point, not no. gracefully. 
No, and like the one person that does end up getting quote unquote out of it is because like he caused a ruckus and like basically had to go out like a Disney Channel star, you know, show your tits, you get out of the club for free. Yeah. And I just, yeah, this movie was just really um, eye-opening to the severity of what what this meant, what it, what it was. Because I didn't know how far it went, you know, how hard they tried to keep this secret a secret. And, and he went on record, Nixon, just after this, in, in the Frost-Nixon interviews, as essentially saying that if... If you do an illegal action as the president, it is not illegal. And I think that it's that that mindset makes it all the more important that people like Bernstein and Woodward and his bosses like, you know, Ben Bradley went all the way to the core of this thing to expose it as thoroughly as they did. Because if you allow any kind of mindset of an office of power of any level makes you above consequence and honestly, is a is a poisonous idea yeah because honestly that's that's completely our 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 system you know up until that point as well and i mean i'm not going to say that it's not still happening today but that was really the first time that it finally became public you know, and we had had incidents of, 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 you know, corporate corruption happening all throughout history, but they could keep it under wraps easier because, you know, the, the rules were a little bit looser. They didn't have to, you know, they could, they could push this thing as far down as they wanted to because there were only a few elite people. And, you know, anybody who, who thought that they could say something was dead before they could, you know, they you could do what you wanted. And so like that kind of mindset led to people like Nixon and, and like that party literally thinking that they could do whatever they wanted. And for a time they were successful because he did win the presidency because of these things, you know, like, yeah. And, and that's the important thing to remember here. Nixon got caught. It went wrong it got sloppy, he got caught. He might have never gotten caught, and he could have gotten away with it. He could have gotten away with it. We could have had a whole nother term of Nixon and and come to this point in history and just be finding out about it because of because of the way that, you know, things finally open up after a certain period of time because everybody in the incident has to be dead, basically. And so... I think that it's pretty telling and pretty interesting. And I think that it's, it's honestly a very, it's, it's something that I don't think as a movie, people go, oh, there are certain people that you meet that go, oh, all the president's men is great. But I think that by and large, for whatever reason, it's not as talked about, not as referenced, not as brought up a movie anymore. And I think that it's a movie that'll... A lot of people should watch. Oh, for sure. My thing is, um, I I love and hate the name. I think that it is very clever, and I understand it after watching the entire context of this movie. But just as a name for a movie, it literally could be anything. Could be a movie about building the cabinet. Yeah. All the president's men. It could be a war movie. 
Yeah. You know, it could be literally anything. And so, honestly, like, I think that that's probably, like, my only note for this movie is that the fact that it has a vague title. So if you had to give it a rating out of five, what would you give it? Um, I'm going to give this movie a... I'm going to give this movie a four and a half. Okay. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go four and a half as well. I think that that's fair. I think that this, I think this movie flows really nicely. I think that it, it really keeps the attention and it's really, um, interesting. Um, and I think that it's really well done. I think that, um, it really holds up for a movie from 1976. Yeah. Really solid. No, for sure. Um, I agree. I think it's great performances by everyone involved. I love Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat. Um, I think he does a great job at having this severity and this mystery and this moral rightness while still being so vague a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that he really does a good job at, at fleshing that all the way out. And um, and I really quite liked it. Um, I guess we should move on now. Yes. Uh, we'll jump forward 13 years. Uh, and we'll jump into Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Uh, so Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was released July 21st. 1989. It's about to have its birthday. Oh, nice. Um, its runtime is two hours even. It's rated R. It had a budget of $6.5 million. It grossed $37.2 million. It is written and directed by Spike Lee, but this is before he started calling his films a Spike Lee joint. <laughs> uh, and it stars... Danny Aiello, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, Richard Edson, Giancarlo Esposito, Spike Lee, Bill Nunn, John Turturro, Rosie Perez, and Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senor Love Daddy. And the premise is on the hottest day of the year on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. Wow. Uh, I guess I'll I'll kick this one off. So the first time that I saw this movie was back in college. It was a movie that I had heard a lot about, and the first time that I saw it was actually in a college class, and it was kind of a a thing where you know, we would go through every decade and we would sort of watch a movie that, that that professor felt emulated that decade. And it was a media history class at large, so we covered print media, radio, TV, film, at all. Um, and he would sort of summarize film of a time period with a specific film. And so for the 90s of independent cinema and the sort of rebel filmmaker generation of, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and Spike Lee he decided to go with do the right thing. Uh, and it was also a day where he said, you know, he did not take attendance if you did not want to show up. 
And I think that that's definitely because Do the Right Thing is not an easy film. It's one of the most incredible movies you will ever watch, and it's not like the hardest film you will ever watch, but it's a very intense, in-your-face, Spike Lee movie in every sense of of what that could possibly mean. And I think that um, I was really taken with this movie when I first watched it. It was so theatrical of a film Mm -hmm. without being based on a play. Mm -hmm. And it was so colorful and the characters were so fleshed out and the language was so particular and the imagery was so specific and striking. And I was really, really, really taken with this movie. I had seen two Spike Lee movies before this. I had seen The 25th Hour. Uh, no, three. I had seen The 25th Hour. I had seen A Miracle at St. Anna. And I had seen Inside Man. And so, you know, I had even seen with, with Miracle at St. Anna some of, of his direct touching on race. Um... And, uh, I was, I was really blown away by this movie. Like it, it really touched me to the core and it was one of those movies that I, I routinely would go back and think about. Um, and so going back and, and rewatching it was honestly just as much of a treat, if not even better in some ways on another watch because I was I was able to kind of take a step away from some of just like the shock value of just being blown off my fucking ass uh, by this absolute experience of a movie and I could really digest it, you know, after all these years of thinking about it, you know, sort of separated from the time of it. And it's still so relevant. Um, and that's heartbreaking in its own way but also I think speaks to how deftly he was able to craft a story that is one dripping in the time that it's made but two timeless in the core of its narrative Mm-hmm. what about you I really enjoyed this movie a lot um I'm not very familiar with Spike Lee's um, filmography. I'm not going to lie. Um, You've seen Inside Man. We watched that one together. Yes. Um, Could I tell you at this moment what it's about based on the title alone? Probably not. The robbery one with Denzel and Clive Owen where Clive Owen um, oh, is, oh, the, the one, is the bank robber. Yes, yes, yes. And he puts himself in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. God. Again, another titled movie where I go, I don't know. Um... And, yeah, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I, I, I couldn't get through to Five Bloods. I, I, I still, that's, that's I guess, a, a bucket list item. Of, it's a great movie. I mean, yeah, but it, it hurt the spirit to watch. Um, uh, and, but I thought that this movie had, like, a really interesting, like, to your point, very theatrical. It's, it's barely poppy. It, it, it does very much remind me of, like, the 90s kind of film in in the sense of 
you know, there's a lot of fun, weird angles and a lot of interesting things done with the camera and a lot of um, storytelling done with just the cinematography alone. And then there's the, the scenes where we've got, you know, the entire crowd of of the ensemble, basically, of, of this movie put into into their own blocking in this tableau shot as each of them has a line to say as the camera pans over them. Yeah, each you know, of them says the name of um of someone who died at the hands of a cop. Yeah, and these these moments of like true true like, you know theaters. Yeah, stuff. yeah, no, honestly. Um The opening with Rosie Perez dancing. Uh, yeah, um in front of this more set like the 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 scene of them um you know doing racial slurs about a different race you know the presented to us by different races each time as well you know it's kind of this like we are all the same but we're all disgusting kind of thing and it was it's it's it, the the whole movie kind of has this almost like whimsical um authority to it where it's it, it knows exactly what it wants to tell you but it's also very light and very like poppy almost and it can use fantasy to be fun or it can be fantasy to be mean and ugly yeah and it can all be under this umbrella of fantastical of this weird day on this weird street that exists but doesn't exist in where New we York. have this greek chorus as as presented by this narrator radio dj mm-hmm. you know sort of expressing these sort of other ideas and presenting narrative shifts mm-hmm. and moments for pause and reflection and curve in the narrative and you know you you even get bits that are entirely unrelated until suddenly those characters appear somewhere else mm-hmm. and you go oh shit that's sweet dick willie mm-hmm. you know who's been just kind of again one of these almost chorus figures mm-hmm. narrating from the sideline there are certain characters that are like active narrative characters and certain characters that are chorus characters ozzy davis as demare uh, Sister Mother Ruby D, uh, the three men over outside the Korean grocer, and Senor Love Daddy, uh, Mr. Senor Love Daddy, excuse me, I think are all kind of chorus characters more so. They are commenting on the block, on the nature of the block. From different perspectives. And they are rarely engaged very directly in the action. DeMayer is probably the most directly engaged in the action all the time. And then you have active narrative characters. Sal, Vito and Pino, Mookie, um, the group of teens, Radio Rahim, Mm -hmm. who's kind of our Achilles. He's kind of our mythic character. There's a real Greek nature to the tragedy of the story. No, honestly, um, and I think that that's probably where he got a lot of like influence from with just how to to structure this this ensemble piece because at the end of the day it is an ensemble and um you were you were you know talking and I was thinking about um was thinking about what you were saying and it was reminding me a lot of like uh once on this island 
which is a show that you can do with a with a huge cast of people or you can pretty much have exactly the number of people that you need to play one part and then you could continue that through the rest of the story with them also being narrators when they're not playing their said part and this kind of reminded me of that as well because like you know you were talking about these these narrative characters and it is very um you know if i were to stage this they would each have a part of their of the stage that was their set yeah sister uh sister mother stoop yeah exactly exactly the 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 Mm. the three on the street with their with their chairs you know the radio DJ's booth. Yeah. And then Demare would be the one that's my floater. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um and it's it's kind of also um these these different generations all colliding as well and it's it's somehow magically still a, a fantastic uh representation of what what New York is truly like as well. Yeah. In this in this weird fantastical lens because very few movies have ever really captured how diverse a New York block sounds. Mm-hmm. The fact that people are just sitting around in lawn chairs on the sidewalk. With an umbrella. Yes! That happens all of the time. Just playing cards. They brought a table from their apartment down to the street corner and are going to play cards and drink beers while people are trying to commute. That is a real thing that happens. That's a real thing, and I think that that's fantastic that... Somehow they, they that he effortlessly put these characters in, and everybody knows exactly who they're playing. Radio you know? Rahim don't give a shit where he's playing his radio. No, yeah, because also it's the late '80s. Of course, this guy has his his beats blasting. You know, um, uh, random aside, very random aside. While Radio Rahim is on my mind, this thought popped in. I love the almost. Um, western duel scene which where Raheem comes up with his radio to the group of of guys who oh, have their yes. radio yes and he fucking and they have this it. radio off and i loved that it's kind of this spaghetti western yeah like a shoot of a boom up. box duel yeah because he's the king and he was you know he's he's like a lion asserting his his dominance over the pride your your boom box is not the boombox of this block. So my beats win, so therefore you have to turn off your beats. Yeah. You know, I won this beats battle. And it's fantastic, you know? And he walks away just smoldering down the street. And it's such an Old West shot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's so good. No, oh gosh. And, like, just everybody is just doing such a phenomenal job in the cast um, as well. You know, with... Um, I really just wasn't expecting Spike mm-hmm. at all in this, and it was it was fun to see him also as just as a young man because like modern day Spike Lee looks like our old theater teacher, and it just throws me the idea of this person ever being young or being hip or cool. You know, you're just like, oh gosh, they're so and so with their thick glasses. So Spike Lee in his diary, his journal mm-hmm. that he kept talks about the fact that ultimately he is going to cast himself in the film mm-hmm. because he cast himself in a previous film of his out of partial necessity and he didn't expect the positive feedback that he got 
mm. from critics. And he thinks that it would be foolish to not capitalize on that energy now. And he knows that he has limits as an actor, so he'll have to be careful in how he structures the character that he's going to play. Maybe he'll play this character that kind of is a guy that'll pop off if you scuff his sneakers. Mm-hmm. And so originally, I think that he was going to write himself, I haven't gotten to finish his journal, I think that he was going to write himself as bugging out. I mean, that's the, that part, oh my god, that was fantastic. I was like, if any representation of, like, black culture is, like, absolutely 100% the most precise thing that you could have ever put, was that scene. I absolutely love the, the fact that this man comes, brushes his shoes, and then we get this, like, whole pan with the camera just an instant shot of this scuff on yeah, this just man's the whip pan right onto him you know and then bam right back onto the face where he is like what and it's just so good and like this this white dude has no idea what's going on and it's it's such an interesting like perspective of like gentrification and like the fact that like this dude just lives in this neighborhood because he can afford to but like isn't a part of the neighborhood you know we don't ever see that guy again no, he's not a part of the neighborhood, to your point. He does just live there. And it's just, it's such an interesting, mo and I loved the, like, gang of kids, you know, that come around him and, and like, they, they hype him up in this whole thing. And, like, I was like, this is exactly, this is exactly right. It's it's fantastic. Um, that's probably one of my, my absolute favorite, just, like, visual shots from this movie. Because it just has so much flair. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think that this movie has a really subtle and interesting um perspective well not always subtle i don't think that i i could ever truly describe spike lee as a subtle individual no um but i think this he's about as subtle as a toothache that's right uh, <laughs> and he is but this movie has its moments of being like really quiet and really introspective and really interesting and then it's also very flashy and fun but then it finds this like effortless flow into like the reality of the situation you know there are there are a lot of fun times and there's a lot of you know laughs and good times and we can get on each other's nerves and that be okay and then when the table turns you know it has this really um fantastic climax um not saying that that what actually happens is 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 a fantastic thing that I highly recommend, but it's fantastical it's, in the sense of it is an awe-inspiring display. It's 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 it's, it's breathtaking. It is it is, and it's you realize as a viewer, you know where the movie is going after this fun romp that we've basically been having. Um, and, and it, it knows exactly how to be serious and without, without playing it, it as a joke, you know, you live in this moment and you watch, you know, a, a truly horrifying act happen and you feel as helpless as the people around them. It's Shakespearean tragedy. It is. It was it a is. comedy for the first act. Yes. And now we're in the second act is Nightfall. Yes. It is a fun, for the most part, movie Until. while it is day. And then it becomes nightfall, mm -hmm. and DeMayer gives his soliloquy in the streetlight. Mm -hmm. And from there, the movie's mood shifts. Yes, and but it's also still completely um, within its... Within its own world of honesty. Mm -hmm. You know, this it, Spike never once breaks his own themes that he's built while he's doing this. And I think that that's the, the thing that's truly inspiring also with him as a writer is just the fact that he found the good, that, that, 
you know, perfect balance of, of, you know, all of these mini plates that he's juggling and still managing to continue that through a tragic moment and still have, you know, without losing any of them. It is rigid structure that is, you know, lyrical genius. Mm-hmm. You know, it is truly Beethoven-level precision of notes and moments that on the page you probably look at and go, huh? Hmm. And then you hear it and you go, oh. Like, this is this is truly a movie that I would use as, like, a reference point if I were ever going to... to, to it's a master class. To, yeah, to try my hand at writing something. Like, I would use this as like a, as, like, a blueprint, you know, to figure out what works here and what I liked about this and how to bring that to my own work because I would I would love to create something like this. Orson Welles, if I'm not mistaken, said that in preparation for Citizen Kane, he watched, and I could be wrong, like Stagecoach? Mm-hmm. Like at least 20 times. Fascinating. Because he considered that a perfect movie. And I think that this is... And so, to your point, I think that, like, you could look at the structure of this movie and how he uses language and character and aside and rhythm and tone and absolute classical structure in the most literal sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, a five-act play. Mm Mm-hmm to create a narrative. And I think that it's those elements together that make something really unique and really special. Um, no, yeah. Do you think anyone did the right thing? I think that that's questionable. I think that at the end of the day, everybody had their own interests in mind, you know, with bugging out, being like, I want I want black people on the, on the Italian wall of fame and not letting it go. You know, nobody was really, really to let go of their own thing in order to not like entirely let go, but to, to, to become a unit, you know, to, to, to give and take a little bit, you know, there could have been compromise all over here, all over the movie, but people stuck to their guns through to the end. Yeah. And without anybody letting up and maybe really caused, you know, it caused a shift in the dynamic. And you look at the characters that do kind of, fare the best and much of them are the most flexible Mm -hmm. um and i think i think that you're right i think it is hard to say if anyone did the right thing but i i also think that the movie after such a devastating ending manages to create in a few minutes the promise that at the end of the day if both parties are willing, things can be mended. Yeah, because also at the end of the day, you know, these people aren't aren't strangers to each other. You know, this man has been in this... They are their own weird family. Yeah, you know. You know, the, the pizza owner talks about all the time that, you know, these kids in they this grew neighborhood up on my grew pizza. up on his pizza. They grew up on my food. You know, and he was proud of that. You know, and sure, he's his, you know, John Totoro, the the racist son. Sorry, John. <laughs> you, you did a damn good job, though. You did great, baby. Uh, um, 
but you know, you know, having having these kind of like I I loved the the pizza owner with his 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 angel son and his devil son, yeah. you know, both on his shoulder. Well, when when things were good, he leaned more into you know the the angel side, wanting to cooperate, wanting to be passive, wanting to be peaceful. But then also there are the things that that you know made him mad, and then he would lean more onto to Pino, you know, to. To, to 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 you know get let that fire roar a little bit more you know feed it and it's just it, i think that every character i think that everything was is perfectly you know emphasized by the the situation and there are passive characters but there also need to be mm-hmm. you know uh i think that this movie is necessary watching for every person in America. There are, maybe even in the world, there are not a lot of pieces of art, and I think that we've talked about this, and I think I've even talked about this on the show, there aren't a lot of pieces of art that I think are necessary from every art form. There are very few pieces that I think from dance, music, poetry, film, song, what have you, are 100% necessary. And I'm sure that that list, if I could live forever, would change. Well, because right the, now, the message that you need to hear will change. Mm-hmm. Right now, and for the foreseeable future, as long as I'm alive, as far as I can tell, do the right thing is a necessary piece of art from film. No, honestly, because also, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, I think that this movie, while it is very political, um, and has a very opinion, it, it is, it is very accessible because I also think that because it is written from the perspective uh, of you know the black side i think that it, it has a lot of honesty in its messaging you know because all of the characters are now real people and not just stereotypes and he doesn't he's not without empathy for sal no he's no. not without empathy for other perspectives and i think that he gives every character pretty much except for like the cops and john Turturro, almost Every character has empathy. Well, I think that even, you know, the the one cop, I think that he... Yeah, the one more than the other. Yeah, for sure. Because, like, technically, you know, he was doing his job. These things escalated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but at the end of the day, also, like, I could... I, you can tell in his face that he realizes that it's going too far. But by and that he vocalizes point, it. Multiple you know, times. It's 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 too late. It's too late. You can't turn off the beast. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this. I think that this movie is very um, for it being you know nineteen eighty nine, relevant today as ever. Almost screaming, and it was relevant just after the movie came out with the L.A. riots. Yeah, you know, like it was immediately relevant again. Yeah, you know, and with the the atmosphere that's that's constantly ebbing and flowing through the American uh, history currently, you know, I don't see, to your point, this issue going away. It's relevant. Anytime, anytime soon without active change. Yeah. 
And that's, that's why this is such, and eventually it'll become necessary art just for how fucking good it is. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. You know, at the end of the day, I think that this is a, this is a damn fine piece of art. I think that it says exactly what it needs to say in, in a way that is inventive and fun to watch mm -hmm. and also, you know, really empower, empowering and impactful and all while, you know, you've got... That's two hours also. Yeah, and you've got characters called Buggin' Out and Mother Sister. And, and Radio Raheem. Like, this is, this is not a, this is not a fantasy world. World, but it's it's between fantasy and reality in this nice smooth and accessible place of fun that is completely 1989 yeah um i mean it's a five out of five for me i know? mean i i just basically gave it a glowing endorsement it's a five yeah. out of five for me i think that this movie is is truly spectacular and also i understand how that man became the man that made the five bloods that i can't finish yeah well um that's pretty much all that we have for y'all movie-wise. Um, definitely go back and check out last week's episode um, from uh, our last Pride episode. Woo! Where we talked about Freaky, the slasher comedy with, uh, with Mad. It was a great episode. Um, it's July, so we will be having a newsletter soon. Be sure to come and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Um, and, uh, definitely be sure to come back next week when we're continuing our summer theme with the two documentaries, uh, Endless Summer and The Summer of Soul. Awesome. So definitely be sure to come back and check that out. And, uh, I'll leave you off with, uh, one last little bit. Uh, before we, we go on and, and finish up the show, I'll just read you off a little bit of two documents. Uh, first, the Declaration, and second, the Constitution, which, by the way, was adopted after we had already had a set of governing documents called the Articles of Confederation, which failed. Uh, and the Constitution was not actually ratified until 1789. But first, a little bit of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to pursue them shall seem most likely to affect their safety 
and happiness. Mm. And now, the preamble of the United States Constitution. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. The end. Happy 4th of July, y'all. Bye!